we're looking for a balance of probability. Absolute proofs, just evidence. And we have one piece of evidence, the prediction of conquest, exile, survival, and return. <coughs> From Deuteronomy 28 to 30. Today we're going to look at a second area of evidence. This is dealing specifically with the relation of Sinai, the Exodus of Egypt, which will have implications somewhat beyond those events as well. Most of what we know about the world, we know from other people. The vast majority of our information is not of events that we have personally experienced. Of course, not everything that other people say is true. Throughout life, we have to discriminate. The stories that we are told by other people, individuals and groups, which ones are credible and which ones are not credible. All of history comes from what other people tell us. What's going on in other parts of the world where we are not at the present moment comes from what other people tell us. How do we decide which reports to accept and which reports to reject? The answer is that when we get a report, we put it into a category. And that category, in our experience, the reports are usually true. Well, they're not usually true. We put it into a shell of a category, and on the basis of the category that it fits, we make up our minds whether to accept it or not. But it's all based on experience. The experience of which reports turn out to be true, and which reports turn out to be false. So imagine that you're a judge, and you have an eyewitness report of a crime, and that's all you've got. There's no physical evidence, just the eyewitness report. Sometimes you convict, and sometimes you don't. You ask, were the witnesses calm at the time of the crime? Why do you care about that? Because you know from experience that people who are calm report more accurately what happens to the people who are not calm. So you want to know whether they're calm or not, because your experience tells you being calm is important. You're not going to ask whether the last nation did with P or with Q because your experience tells you that that's not important. That makes no difference as to whether or not the report is generally true or generally false. You want to know whether the witnesses have a personal interest in the event being one way or another. Why? Why do you want to know that? Because you know from your experience that people have a personal interest Sometimes lies. And therefore, if they have personal interests, 
That means the report is less credible because they're in a category of people for whom their stories are less often true. Accepting or rejecting a report depends upon what category it goes into, whether in that category the reports are generally true or not generally true. If you have a story it goes into a category where every story in that category, every story in that category is known to be true, then you have extremely strong reason to accept that this story is true. You have a story in a category where for that category some stories can't be checked independently, so you don't know whether they're true or false. But never once, never once in this category have you ever checked and found a story to be false. Many have been checked and found to be true. Many can't be checked at all. But never once have you checked and found a story to be false. and you now are considering a story from that category, you have very good reason to accept that it's true. To reject it would mean that you are opting to say that it's false in a category where never once has a story from this category been discovered to be false. This is how we go about life altogether. Because, as I said, the vast majority of what you know, you know from other people. And you have to decide what to accept and what not to accept. Now, what I want to argue for you is that the belief in Revelation at Sinai belongs to such a category. It belongs to the category of stories in which we have never once found a story in that category which we have demonstrated to be false. Never once. There are many stories in the category that we can't check. There are many that we can. The ones that we can check have all been found to be true. And that, I say, gives us very strong reason, very strong evidence that the story is true. Now, what category is that? Well, <coughs> I want to work at this in two stages. First, I want to explain the intuitive idea, and then I'll give you the official definition. Official definition is a little complicated. If you don't have any idea what the intuitive idea is, it'll be hard for you to relate to it, hard for you to grasp it. Let's imagine for a moment that the revelation did not happen. Let's imagine that it's a myth. Let's imagine someone making up the story of the Revelation and trying to convince people that it happened. So, there's a group of people living in an area and who have their history and their folk ways, and their 
religious ideas, but there never was a mass revelation to all of their ancestors at any particular time. Now somebody's making this up. He's creating this myth. He says to these people, I want you to know that your ancestors, your ancestors, all of them, stood on a mountain and heard the creator of the universe speak to them. This happened 350 years ago. And I happen to know what the creator said. See? Sound pretty important. This happened to all your ancestors. Not to the Chinese, not even to the British, but to your ancestors, to your great-great-great-great-grandmothers and grandfathers. What sort of response is he likely to get? The response he's likely to get, worse than prove it, the response he's likely to get is, you're telling us something about our history. You're telling us something about our ancestors. Well, if it happened, surely we should know about it. I mean, you're talking about the ancestry of our nation. What happened to it? People just forgot about it? You tell us one of the things God announced to them is that they should keep a weekly holiday. Every Saturday is a holiday. What happened? Did they forget? They're more interested in the soccer scores? You know, they went scuba diving in the Red Sea and just uh, lost it? There's going to be a natural resistance to such a story because if the story were true, everybody should know about it. It should be public knowledge. I'll give you an example of some parallels. Suppose someone today tried to make up a myth that in 1620, the people of the American colonies conquered Central and South America. And they held on to the whole continent for 35 years, and then local revolts caused them to lose their grip. I don't think you should even get the Americans to believe that, even though it's in their interest, it will certainly stroke their egos. But the objection will be, if that happened, people would remember it. It's not the sort of thing that people just forget. Okay, but that's the Americans. Let's try the British. Suppose you tried to tell the British that 600 years ago, before the printing press, before widespread public records, 600 years ago, the British conquered Western and Central Europe all the way to the Ural Mountains, and held it for 35 years. The British ego really needs a little stroking, doesn't it? Still, I don't think you'll even get the British to believe it. Why not? Because they'll say, if our ancestors conquered such an area and held it that way, we would know about it. That's not the kind of achievement that people forget about. That would be celebrated in story and song. There would be traditions based on it. The names of the military heroes would become popular names in the citizenry. It's not the kind of thing that people will forget. If you try to create a myth about the entire ancestry of a nation, and you try to sell the myth to that nation itself, again, I'm not talking about 
Kid telling the British about the Chinese, then maybe you could get them to believe almost anything. But we're talking about trying to sell the British a myth about their own ancestors. Then you're going to run up against tremendous resistance. The resistance that, if it were true, everybody should know about it. And since we're supposing it's a myth, nobody knows about it because there isn't any yet. Because it didn't happen. Then there'll be tremendous resistance against accepting such a, such a myth. Now, now, what I have told you so far proves nothing. What I have told you so far proves nothing. All this indicates is that there will be resistance. Nothing I have said indicates that the resistance will always win. There will be resistance. Okay, sometimes forces overcome resistance. All I've done so far is explain to you an intuition. This has nothing to do with the argument. It's just a way of familiarizing yourself with the concept of the idea. This is not the evidence. I haven't presented the evidence yet. So the counterexamples that are running through your mind are not relevant because I haven't presented the argument yet. The argument goes back to what I said at the very outset. What I want to do now is create for you a category based on this intuition. A category in which I claim there are no demonstrated cases of stories which are false. The category is stories about the experiences of the entire ancestry of a nation at a particular time. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. We're talking about a story concerning the experience Experience. That means each person in the nation experiences it. Not the army, which is 2%, goes off someplace and does something, and then everybody else hears about it. No, everyone experiences it. The whole ancestry of the nation at a particular time experiences this event, and it's the kind of event which could be expected to make a difference to the way the nation lives. Now, this doesn't have to be a revelation. This is not limited to revelations. This could be a migration. It could be a disastrous disease like the Black Death in Europe. It could be the invention of a piece of technology. It could be a migration. It could be a war that the country loses (coughs) and is occupied by the enemy. And the enemy army stations itself in the country and taxes it and depresses the population, which everyone experiences. So we're not talking about revelations in particular now. We're talking about stories <coughs> concerning the experience of the entire ancestry of a nation at a particular time, an experience which could be expected to change the life of the nation. Now, so far as I have been able to discover in my historical research, there isn't a single such story that we know to be false. Not one. With all the myths of ancient times, and with all of the nonsense that people believe at present, not one story fits that description. 
in this particular category, the category of stories about a national experience where everyone in the ancestry experiences it. And the spirit of an event which could be expected to change the life of the nation. Why do I put in that, uh, that uh, requirement? Because, for example, very few ancient nations kept track of eclipses. Even though the eclipse was experienced by everybody. But very few nations kept track of eclipses because, although they were quite frightening events, and they had often elaborate mythologies about what happens during an eclipse, but after the eclipse is over, life goes back to normal. Things just go on as they were before. So, although it's frightening for the moment, people knew that it didn't mean that the crops will fail or two-headed monsters will be born, or that uh, fire will fall from the sky. It's just frightening, and then it's over. Like a bad dream. And therefore, they didn't feel any reason to keep track of events like that. There isn't a single example of a belief in this category, a belief about the national experience of the entire ancestry of a nation at a time, of an event which could be expected to change the life of the nation. Not a single story in that category which we know to be false. There are many which deal with events we can't check one way or the other. There are many, like stories of wars or inventions or migrations or uh, pestilences and the rest, which we can check and they check to be true. There isn't a single one that we know to be false. That being the case, I claim we have very strong evidence to believe any story in that category. On the same grounds that we believe the reports of people about any fact. We put them in the category and ask whether reports in that category are generally true or false. And here we have a case of a category where not a single case is discovered to be false. Now, let me comment briefly on some of the counterexamples that would be rattling around that most people said to show you why they're not relevant, and then I'll take questions. Didn't medieval people believe in dragons? Surely if people believe in dragons, then, you know, you can get anybody to believe in anything. Uh, ask yourself, are there stories of dragons that meet this category? Are there stories of national experiences of dragons? Let's even reduce it. Citywide experiences of dragons. Do the inhabitants of London, did they ever believe <coughs> that a dragon made a public appearance in London in broad daylight, burning people to death with its fiery breath and drowning in the Thames? No. The beliefs about dragons are always deep in the forest. Sir Galahad comes out of the forest, bruised and, and, and bleeding. What happened, Sir Galahad? I had a running with the dragon in the forest. I'm walking to be alive. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. This is not a belief in this category. Uh, the beliefs of ancient Greece, I went through full pages of mythology, all 780 pages of it. There's the single myth in this category, not one. Achilles goes up to the mountain to confer with Pallas Athene, by himself, of course. Later, Pallas Athene comes down to fight with the Greeks in her chariot. It's just that she goes by so fast, you can only get into dust behind her chariot. You don't see her, because she's a god, you see. She doesn't, she's not seen by the masses of people. The stories are all carefully crafted to protect 
against this category of being a real national experience. Anti-Semitism. Anti-Semites are viciously prejudiced, evil people with wild imaginations, little capacity and little incentive to exert rational control on their beliefs. What kind of beliefs do they have about Jews? That they control international finance behind closed doors, of course, where nobody can see them. Germans believe that the Jews cost them the First World War. The expression in Germany was, they stabbed us in the back. That's right. When someone stabs you in the back, you don't see him. Nobody in Germany believed that the Jews laid down en masse in front of the tanks to stop the advance of the tanks. Nobody believed that. It was a belief of somebody working in secret where nobody can see him. Blood libels. People who believe in blood libels have every reason to disregard rationality in order to express their hatred of Jews. What is the story in every case? A Christian child goes missing. It must be, it must be that the Jews kidnapped him and used his blood for the masses. It must be because nobody saw it. You don't have any stories, even among Christian anti-Semites, that the Jews came en masse at noon one day to the market, overwhelmed the Christian population, and stole a child. Why not? Why not? If these are vicious anti-Semites, if their minds are unbalanced, if they are prejudiced, if they have no interest in little capacity to exercise rational control, why don't they make up a story like that? UFOs. These people are really unbalanced. When they go to Officer Torah back in one night, and when they come off the, the, the ship, they never take with them a, a paper clip, you know, or a pencil eraser or something. Just a little, a little token, you know, to say, this is what I got from Officer Torah. No, they all come, always come back clean. And they believe in this stuff. But never do you have a belief that, that a, a UFO landed in the middle of Shea Stadium in the middle of a football game with 50,000 people in the stands. Why not? And this isn't even a national experience where you're talking about the descendants of the people who are involved. So, my claim is that we have a category of story. The category is national experiences. That means the experiences of all the people in the nation at a particular time. And it's an experience of an event which would change the life of the nation. We don't have a single example of such a story that's false. No, if that's true, then any story that we have that belongs to that category, we have very good reason to accept it as true. Now, the story of the Revelation at Sinai is precisely such a story. It's a story of a mass revelation taken by the participants to be communication from God, revealing to them His will. His will how they should live. As I mentioned, one element in that revelation is a weekly holiday, every Saturday. That's certainly going to make a mark on the life of the nation. So this is a story about a national experience, one which would change the life of the nation. It never belongs in that category. And as I say, in that category, we don't have a single case of a story which is 
demonstrably false. Therefore, we have overwhelming reason to accept it as true on the same grounds that we accept information as true from any source about history or about contemporary life. When people tell us a story, what we do is we put it into a category and ask whether the stories in that category are generally true or generally false or mixed. And when they're generally true, even generally true, we accept it. And here we don't have a single case of a demonstrated false. Okay, questions up to you. Wars, pestilences like the Black Death, inventions of technology like the, the Greeks who invented steam, steam power. Even though they didn't use it for anything, but they, but they did invent it. Um, inventions of mathematical discoveries like mathematical discoveries of the Greeks. These are, these are stories about national experiences. When once the Greeks invented it, they spread it out throughout the, the whole nation. Everybody learned it. Socrates has a story of teaching it to a slave. Basic, basic geometry. And and uh, all of these we know to be true. I want to elaborate on your objection here, and I want to do this by way of rehearsing the argument again. Um, surely, as he says, it would be much more difficult today to create a false belief about, let's say, 300 years ago. I myself indicated this when I contrasted the case of conquering Central and South America in 1640 versus conquering Central and uh, Central Europe. What's the Central Europe? 600 years ago. I myself said that the latter case would be before printing press was invented and before texts were generally available. So, uh, I built that into my examples. No, but to, to, have, to have something invented just after the printing press was invented of something that happened a long time ago. Not now. Now, now I have a list of every single year what happened in the world. I'm talking about a time when people, I, didn't, I don't know another place exists. Then someone suddenly writing comes out in a few thousand years ago. Writing comes out, and people give me a history of a migratory pattern of, of some nation somewhere. They say your your people here started off here. We uh, found out stuff over there, which I've never been to. I've never heard of. And then suddenly it starts to be spread with uh, with writing and all that. And then the, and the new place begins to believe what happened then. Yeah, well, first of all, the way you're telling the story, you started to say stories about what happened someplace else where I've never been, and then, of course, you recognize that it has to be your ancestry, so you shifted to saying that, but of course, that means we had to have come from there, but if it's we who came from there, then I think the story becomes much weaker, because even though we came from there, it's we who came from there, and then the question will be, how is it that we don't remember that we came from there, 
And how is it that he found out what we don't remember? I think that will create considerable skepticism about the story. Even so, let's say it's one of your own. But the question will be, how is it that we've all forgotten that you know? Right? But then that's why it's too long ago for him. Well, let him show it to us. Yes. We have archaeologists nowadays that tell us things about happening in prehistory, and we can take it as given. Good. So, and you say he would present such evidence to them? Then they're right to believe it. You're not giving an example of how a myth will get started. If he presents evidence that really is relevant to believing that it happened, then they're right to accept it. But all of this is really irrelevant. All of this is really irrelevant. Let me explain why. Because you are creating scenarios in which you feel it is natural for myths like this to come to exist. I agree with you. I agree with you. There are many scenarios in which it is psychologically natural to think that myths like this could come to exist. I just say that that intuition, that it's psychologically natural, is out of touch with reality. It's a genuine psychological intuition, and it's out of touch with reality. Let me give you an example of what I'm saying, and I'll give this objection a title. You're the editor of Nature Magazine, because you're British. If you're American, you'd be the editor of Science. Um, you receive a paper from a geneticist. In this paper, he says, I've discovered that in chicken DNA, there is a gene which, over the uh, 20 degrees centigrade, is likely to, uh, to mutate. <coughs> One in a thousand cases it will mutate, and when this gene mutates, Chicks are hatched with three legs. And he goes through all the complicated uh, experiments that he did with, the, with his gene, bombarding it with radioactivity and with the heat and, and checking the, the, the vision of the cells, all, the whole thing. Right? Now you have to decide what to do with this paper. What would you do? Send it out for further research, ask for confirmatory experiments done someplace else, what would you do? You should throw it in the wastebasket immediately. Because there are millions of chickens every year that are hatched over 20 degrees centigrade. And we've never had a report once of a three-legged chicken. Not once. So he's got to be wrong. I don't care how well he did the experiment. I don't care how well his, program is, his computer is programmed. I don't care how well his centrifuge and his microscope work. He's got to be wrong. Why? Because he's describing a process that delivers a product. He claims the process is present in nature and reasonably common. If he's right that the process is in nature and reasonably common, then the product ought to be reasonably common also. If the product isn't there, he's got to be wrong about the process. Now, you're describing a process, a process by which myths like this could get started. And to you, and maybe to others, it seems psychologically quite natural that following this process, these kinds of myths could get started. And I agree. It can sound very natural. But if this process really is natural, if people really do behave this way, if it really is reasonable to picture this kind of belief process happening in nature, then there ought to be the product of this process. The product of this process is stories about the national experience of the whole ancestry of a nation at a time, a story describing an event which should change the life of the nation. If your intuition is right, then the product ought to exist. Now, I'm telling you the product doesn't exist. So, 
debates about whether it's really natural or not, whether it sounds intuitive or not, does it sound uh, plausible, is only a debate about our psychology. It has nothing to do with the real world. For many people, the idea of squaring the circle or trisecting an angle or building a machine that doesn't use energy is very natural. In fact, hundreds of people try to do it every year. And they send their papers into the scientific journals every year. It's just that it's impossible. It happens to be impossible. They just don't know that. So my claim is that I think all of the debate about whether it sounds psychologically plausible or not is off base. It has nothing to do with reality. That will just be an investigation as to how far our psychology is divorced from the real world. In the real world, it doesn't happen. If so, then we have every, every reason to believe. Yeah, haven't certain myths been accepted as fact and integrated into history, such as you have historians like Herodotus, and they took certain things that they didn't live, they didn't know about in their lifetime, but there was a tradition that was passed on to them, and they kind of collected different histories. And then they had this uh, air of authority, and people accepted what they wrote. And then you have other examples in modern day history, where you have the Palestinians creating myths that they have always existed, and you have intelligent people have access to libraries and universities, and they accept that the Palestinians have had an unbroken chain of people in this land, and they simply have not existed since you know the last maybe 60 years. They, they literally create themselves out of thin air. You might have had Arab peoples, but then there's an element of truth that there were uh, to any life. The Torah says, you know, there's always an element of truth. So, isn't it possible that people can take myths and then create uh, some kind of story that is plausible to, to history, you know, 100 years down the line or 50 years down the line? What do you mean by possible? That, um, because human beings are not knowledgeable, and because you have to constantly teach history in every generation, because you have a large population that's predominantly ignorant of history, it doesn't take much to convince people of things that aren't true. Could you possibly find evidence for or against that proposition? Yeah, the fact that the majority of the people in the world believe that Palestinians have always existed. Now, does that belief fit the category that I described? I think it's a converse to what you're describing. Well, then it isn't my category. It's not my category. Converses don't fit the category. I want my category. They should both be true. No, I'm not committed to the converse of my proposition. Why should I be committed to that? I'm committed to the proposition itself. All, all dogs are animals. The converse is all animals are dogs. I'm not committed to that. Neither are you. Well, that's my claim. My claim is there isn't an example. So whether it sounds natural, sounds possible, sounds plausible, sounds reasonable, means only that what sounds that way to us is out of touch with reality. That's my claim. Yeah. You're saying that because, like, you know, psychologically, they think the causes may happen, so presumably you shouldn't be seen as product. But there's so many unchecked cases where you said, you know, some of them could check of, you know, immigration and invention, and some of them we can't. So many of those could possibly be, you know, products of what, what occurred, but we didn't know it done. Correct. They could possibly be. There also could possibly be leprechauns. Couldn't there? Good. But I don't think you face anything in terms of your life, in terms of the possibility that there are leprechauns. What you want is positive evidence. Now, let's take, let's go back to the example that I started with. You're a judge. You have two eyewitnesses who tell you that something happened. You have to decide whether to believe them or not. So you put them into these categories, right? Category of people that say who are disinterested, 
and who uh, are usually reliable and who aren't on drugs and aren't on alcohol and who were calm at the time the event took place and so forth and so on. Now, in that category, you have many cases of stories which you can't check. I saw this car go over the cliff under these and these circumstances. There's no way to check that. So there are many cases in this category that you can't check. Why then do you rely on it? Because the cases you can check all check true. Every case where you can check, you get corroborating evidence that checks true. In any category, you'll have stories that you can't check. We don't have that kind of universal access to evidence and information that we can check every story. But if in the category, every case you can check, checks true, that's enough reason to accept it. Even to put people behind bars, even to execute them on on occasion. Yeah. Is your category um, like required that to, like today that belief today is held by a large group of people? No, the category doesn't apply. It. Yeah, so what about like the Holocaust denier or something like that? Okay. Even though this now is the converse, and it isn't the proposition that I'm talking about, I'm talking about the possibility that a story about an event could be false. You're talking about a true story. The Holocaust really did happen being disbelieved. I'm talking about a false story about an event that never happened being believed. So, we're talking apples and oranges here. But let me just point out that we have not gotten to the point, and I predict we'll never get to the point, where the vast majority of Jews will come to disbelieve about their own ancestors. Their own ancestors. We're not talking about German anti-Semites or Swedish anti-Semites, or American anti-Semites, who are believing in about a different nation. We're talking about the, the descendants of the original population. The principle of, the Guzri principle, that's what it's called in my, my work. Anyway. This principle applies only to the descendants of the original population. I said you can get the British to believe crazy stories about the, about the Chinese. That you can do. So here, even if I discount the fact that it's the converse, it's still not. It doesn't meet the conditions that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a belief of a group about its own ancestry, not about somebody else's ancestry. Indeed, I did find a couple of cases of mass public miracles, myths believed about a whole mass of people observing the miracle, but it was always somebody else's miracle. In Britain, they believed that something happened in France. Thank you very much. In Greece, one part of Greece believed that it happened in Crete. Again, thank you very much. But the, you don't have that the Greeks believe it happened in Crete, and you don't have the Greeks believe it happened in Greece. It's the Greeks who believe it happened in Crete, which means that it's not their own ancestors. Yeah. What about if the Germans believe that their German forefathers went around and killed everyone? Isn't that a different way of looking at it? The... Would be if they believed that all of their ancestors, all of them, went around killing Jews. But, my friend, if you talk to Germans today, they can hardly find any who are doing it. It was really Britons from Mars who pretended to be Germans who did it. Real Germans didn't kill any Jews. That's a terrible myth that the world has made up to make Germany look bad. That's what they really believe. The Nazis were a kind of uh, genetic aberration which took over the country for six years or so, and then they disappeared, and they don't exist anymore. That's the official German position. I just say when you talk to people. At any rate... What we have now is evidence to accept mass, or I should say national, nationally experienced miracles 
when the miracle is expected to leave a residue in the way the, 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 um, the, the nation lives. That, I think, would include the um, Revelation of Sinai, the, the splitting of the Red Sea, the, the um, plagues in Egypt. Is that their nomination? How does it affect the daily life? Well, um, considering that the vast majority of Jews were assimilated into the Egyptian population, and this was the key to their leaving the country and re-establishing themselves as a nation under God, I think it had a gigantic effect. They were idol worshippers, after all, and this changed their entire orientation. I think it had a gigantic effect in their lives. But um, what I want to point out now is this. This argument works only directly, works directly only for nationally experienced miracles of this kind. There are a few of those, but the vast majority of the miracles that we have accounts of in the Tanakh, in the Bible, and other sources were not nationally experienced. What shall we say about those? Now, <coughs> The fact that this argument doesn't apply doesn't mean we reject them. That's just this argument. <coughs> absence of proof <coughs> is not proof of absence. <coughs> but the truth is that this argument does apply indirectly. And it applies as follows. Most people will have resistance to the idea of miracles, those who do, do so on the grounds that their picture of the world, their picture of the world as a whole, lacks this category. The whole category is absent. Miracles just, you know, miracles need not apply. We're not having it. To break a person's categories, to force him to change the basic structure of his picture of the world requires very considerable evidence. Once you break it, once you introduce the new category to, to add new items to the category is much easier. It doesn't require nearly so much evidence. I'll give you an example of what I mean. You work in a, a, a business and one, and there's money that's being stolen from the business. There are three suspects. So the police call you in and they say, what do you say about A, B, and C? You think that any one of them could have done it? You say, look, I know A for 12 years. I've uh, worked closely with him. He's had many opportunities to feather his own nest by cheating, lying, stealing, in various ways. He has resisted all of them. You want to know who to investigate? I would say leave A alone. It's just not likely that, that he's the one who did it. Because he has a consistent record of complete honesty. That's what I tell the police. Now, a week later, it comes to my attention that three years ago, A stole some money. Surprise to me. We have proof that A stole some money. I think at this point, I would go back to the police and say, listen, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I thought that A was a completely honest person. But now I see that he isn't. 
So maybe you should investigate. Maybe he is guilty of the, of the current uh, loss of money. Now notice, I didn't get any new evidence about his stealing the money now. And still, I'm recommending that they investigate him. Why? Because we've broken his category. He was in the category of completely honest people. He's not in that category anymore. That even without direct evidence, he's worthy of investigation. When you introduce a new category, the amount of evidence you need for a particular item to go into that category goes down drastically. The minute someone admits that there are miracles, an account of another miracle doesn't need the same kind of evidence that was required to introduce the category. At this point, what I would say is this. You have a tradition. The tradition is reliable in the sense that whenever we have checked it, it has turned out to be true. Now there's a lot of information in the, in the tradition that can't be checked, as there is in every history book that you study. There's a raft of information that there's no way today to check. On what grounds do you accept it? That the book is generally reliable. Here, if the tradition is generally reliable, and I have no particular evidence against these descriptions, then it seems to me we have adequate reason to accept it. Though it's not the same reason that we have for the national experiences. National experiences are much more powerful in terms of the evidence that they possess because of this principle of categorizing the uh, stories as I described to you. Yeah, there were several hands up that I shouted down in the middle. Um, what about situations where you have a national uh, experience that's a sheer experience among two nations, such as the Egyptian experience of place? They're not being so much in the Egyptian record on it. Also, the split in the Red Sea is the Midrashim that all bodies of water split. But we seem to be the only one that admits that happened. Okay, this is extremely important. This question comes up every time this subject is discussed. Where are the other ancient records of our stories? For this, you need to know two things. Ancient records never recorded their own defeats because the keepers of the records were paid by the king and the purpose of the record was to glorify the king and his family and his history. So you have no records of their defeats. Number two, ancient records don't record the histories of other peoples. The Greeks were the first to do that, as he mentioned. So when you ask, there's a general point of logic now, when you ask, where is the record of X, you owe a description of the records of the time to show that X ought to be there. You have to investigate that. You can't guess. This again is a place where intuition is useless. Would people make a record of this or not? Gosh, I don't know. Well, you know, I know a report from the New York Times. He'd have been interested. So I'm sure the ancient Egyptians would have been interested. So there must be records. That's in the privacy of your own intuition. It has nothing to do with reality. In reality, look at the ancient records and see what they record. If they never record their defeats, then asking why the Egyptians didn't record their defeats is no question. They never recorded things like that. If you're asking why the Assyrians don't have an account of the religion of Sinai, the answer will be the Assyrians didn't have an account of Babylonian religion, they didn't have an account of Persian religion, they didn't have an account of Egyptian religion, so why should they have an account of Jewish religion? You have to, when you ask why something's missing, you have to investigate whether it should have been there. Otherwise, the question is no question. Now, let's take the, the, the splitting of the seas everywhere. Right? I think this goes into the same basket with the, with the uh, eclipses. 
when the sun goes dark in the middle of the day, that's very impressive. Might be more impressive than water splitting and coming back together. You know, I mean, water moving around is one thing. But the sun goes dark, we're all dead. Okay, and then it comes back. Oh, it came back. And when it comes back, everything goes back to normal. Nothing's different. Okay, so the seas split, they went back together, and everything was normal afterwards. So what? And just as most ancient nations didn't keep records of eclipses, so there's no reason to think that ancient nations are going to keep records of this crazy, crazy event, which, uh, and by the way, also, don't forget, I mentioned this to you in another context, remember the psychology of the, uh, of the, of the, ancient, the ancient mind, very much of what happens, happens without any regularity to them. Every lightning bolt is a sign of one of the gods who's throwing the lightning bolt, because it has no other reason for being there. And the same with storms, and the same with the growth of the crops, and the same with birth of children. Right, so they're surrounded by them. Now, some are more regular, and some are less regular. That doesn't mean that they fall into a different category, as far as they're concerned. Yeah. Is there any recording from the Egyptian side of the Well, again, it was a gigantic defeat, wasn't it? But this is not the kind of, of record that ancient peoples kept. Now, I have a friend who's a, an archaeologist and a, a professor at NYU, considered an authority on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there is an Egyptian priest named Manito, about 200 BCE, 150 BCE, who did have a story of the Exodus. Only he rewrote it for the sake of the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian side of the story. He wrote it as a story of the Jews being lepers, and therefore they were expelled from Egypt. And that's what you expect. If you could turn it into the story of a success rather than a defeat, then maybe you could insert it into the record. But it's got to be a success. It can't be a defeat. Right now, he's now currently doing research on this subject as to whether or not that was a widespread uh, Egyptian tradition. Uh, if it was a widespread Egyptian tradition, then you will have, in the Egyptian nation, a tradition of the event, only, of course, transformed the kind of thing that they would want to remember, and not something which they would, would rather forget. Yeah. Yes. If it were papyrus. Um, it is true. Um, I, don't, I don't usually mention it, because it's extremely difficult to date that papyrus. And it's very difficult to date all Egyptian history. I want you to know that when people tell you this is off by 100 years, their dating system is off by 500 years. There's so much debate as to when things should be uh, dated and uh, the extent of different, uh, different kingdoms. Uh, that it, it, it's a very, very difficult uh, issue. Since it can't be dated in a way that, that uh, people find reliable, so I'm reluctant to mention it. But it is true. It is true that it does mention events that do uh, agree in some part with the story of the Exodus in the book of Exodus. And so some people do mention it as a, as a possible piece of evidence. Uh, this, however, would be a private record. This would not be a, 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 um, an official state record. Official state records were not made in papyrus. They were made in grave and stone, so they should last for centuries, not be uh, dissolved by time. This was just found by, uh, by what they would call chance that it was uh, preserved. Yeah. Well, there were non-Jews who accompanied us there, but nobody else other than the people who were there at the mountain. Which is, you mean, like the Christians and the, and the Muslims? Of course. It comes from our traditions. It's our place, our place for it to come from. Yeah. Don't we, don't we know, like, uh, 
God also offered the Torah to all the other nations. So why wasn't that like born enough? What does it mean he offered? I mean, he asked me the only Torah, no? How did he ask them? I don't know. Okay, so here's the crucial thing. How did he ask us? We're talking about before the revelation of Sinai. The revelation of Sinai wasn't asking, it was the doing already. The Torah says several days before Sinai, Moses came to the Jewish people and said, God has a Torah, do you want it or don't you? That's just a person talking to them without any spectacular miracles, without any revelation. A perfect person who's recognized by them as a prophet came and said to them, the Creator has a, has a, has a Torah, do you want it or not? That's what happened to all the nations. That's right. One of the people that they respected came and said, listen, the Creator has a thing, do you want it or don't you? They didn't experience gigantic miracles. No, he doesn't speak to everyone as a whole. Yeah, I didn't say that, but it's a person talking. It's a person talking to them. Their own priest. Or, and it was offered. It wasn't a question of forcing it on them. Right? And they said, no. That's not the kind of thing which is going to... Since they said no, it didn't change anything. Right? They got this crazy offer, and they, uh, and they, uh, and they rejected it. I'm just curious. Is that document today in the Jarshim that that's the way you use all the colors? It doesn't have to be documented. The way it was offered to us, it says it was offered to, not only to us, but to all of them. How was it offered to us? It was offered to us because Moses came down from the mountain and said, God told me to tell you that I have it, or if you wanted it or not. There's no other way to, uh, there's no other way to say it. Otherwise, it isn't an offer. Okay, whatever it is. The point is, it was a, a communication, a, a normal communication without mass uh, miracles, and therefore there's no reason why it should be remembered. Okay, yeah. Wouldn't there be a distortion of reality? The story might have happened, but it was exaggerated. Okay, last point, and then I'll, I'll continue to support 30 for those who want. This is the standard response that you get over and over again. I said that either it happened or it was made up. Made up. Invented by someone. Just invented. Maybe something happened and over hundreds of years it was gradually transformed into such a story. Myths, they say, do start that way. They start with a real event and then gradually over time it's changed and transformed and added to until it becomes a story of, a, of, such a, of such a miracle. Well, we are back to the three-legged chicken. We're back to the three-legged chicken. What are you imagining? You're imagining a way in which such a story could be believed. Now, I say, if you're right, if you're right, then there ought to be a number of such stories that we know of and can show are false and came into existence that way. The three-legged chickens ought to be there. If they aren't there, then your intuition that it could happen this way has to be wrong. It's a natural psychological intuition. It's out of touch with reality. In the real world, people don't do that. I'm concerned with the real world. I'm not concerned with what seems natural to us. I'm concerned with what really happens. That can only be attacked by going historically to find the beliefs of real people, which investigation I did, as I told you, I couldn't find any. Okay.